Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. The word martyr, as we discuss, comes from the Koine Greek, and it means witness or testimony. And it first applied to the apostles, but then once Christians started to undergo persecution, it came to be applied to those who suffered hardship for their faith. And then finally it was restricted to those who had been killed or died for their faith. And so today I want to look at the biblical definition and compare it to one 20th century martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whom we've been discussing, to raise the issue as to what it might mean to be a martyr in the 21st century. So Stephen, as we know, is considered the first martyr in Acts 6, 8, 753. He's brought before the Sanhedrin. These people accuse him and Paul is there and they lay their cloaks at Paul's feet, which indicate that Paul is the official from the Sanhedrin. And uh, he gives this long description of the history of the Jews And then at the end of the speech, in uh, verse 51, chapter 7, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You might get the idea that he's uh, creating a lot of anger and they, of course, stone him after this. In uh, last year, in 2020, World Watch is an organization that keeps statistics. They said there's been over 340 million Christians that have experienced persecution and some sort of discrimination and nearly 5,000, 4,700 martyrs were killed in 2020. 4,480 churches were attacked. 4,277 believers were detained, put in prison, put on trial. And so the word conveys a condition that is very much with us. In fact, if you count the number of modern martyrs, many people think there are more modern martyrs than there were martyrs in ancient Rome. But the New Testament consistently pointed to the reality, points to the reality. You know, James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. They're experiencing degrees of persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I guess we should worry a little bit if we're not persecuted. 1 Peter 4.14 If you are insulted 
For the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Then he warns, don't suffer because of being a thief or murderer or an evildoer. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. John 15.18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 2 Corinthians 12.10, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Revelation 6, 9 to 11. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained and they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? At Westminster, there are 10 20th century martyrs honored and their statues are drawn from every continent. Examples of martyrs. Many Christian denominations, and they represent those who have been oppressed and persecuted. So there's the victims of Nazism, victims of communism, of religious prejudice. So Martin Luther King Jr., Oscar, Oscar Romero, Archbishop of El Salvador, both of whom were assassinated. Dietrich Bonhoeffer killed by the Nazis. Wang Ziming, a pastor, killed during the Chinese Cultural Revolution. And what we see as we look at these modern examples is that the term martyr has come to include those certainly who have died for the testimony, but also, you know, Martin Luther King is actually working on behalf of civil rights. Oscar Romero also in El Salvador, his working on defense of the poor who were victims of widespread violence and he declared, I'm ready to sacrifice my life for El Salvador. And he, like Martin Luther King Jr., is advocating for human rights. And so they're recognized as martyrs. In other words, the term Christian martyr has come to include a broader meaning. Now, I'm not so interested in the semantics or the meaning of the term, but what I'm interested in is what might it mean to suffer with Christ in the 21st century. And so let's look at the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was hanged by the Nazis, and who seemed to have a premonition that he and his generation in Germany would be called upon to die for the faith. As early as 1932, he says in a sermon, we must not be surprised if once again times return for our church when the blood of martyrs will be required. But even if we have the courage and faith to spill it, this blood will not be as innocent or as clear as that of the first martyrs. Much of our own guilt will lie in our blood. The guilt of the useless servant who is thrown into the darkness. 
And so in this sermon, Bonhoeffer raises the question. Yes, we may die for the faith, but he's saying it's different. And many people would say, in fact, many Lutherans would say, Dietrich Bonhoeffer does not qualify as a martyr. The question of whether he should be regarded as a martyr, it's not just a matter of semantics, but I believe it pertains to the very nature of what it means to be a witness for Christ. To the specifics of, you know, he was a pacifist. Ironically, who's going to be accused or he's part of a plot to kill Hitler. And so he's officially accorded the title by the Anglicans in England, not by the Roman Catholics. And strangely enough, even the Lutheran Book of Worship and Evangelical Lutheran Worship, they don't call him a martyr. They say, well, he was a teacher, a theologian, but not a martyr. As a Lutheran pastor, I looked this up, and you know, one of the first things I came across He says, no, he's not a martyr. He says a martyr is one who is killed for his faith. Bonhoeffer was killed for his participation in the plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And instead of not killing, he's accused of attempting to kill. And so is the popular attribution of martyr that is commonly given to him and others. You know, Eric Metaxas has written a book and the name of it is Bonhoeffer, pastor, martyr, prophet, spy. Should we call him a martyr? Martyr and assassin. (laughs) Bonhoeffer's best friend, Eberhard Bethke, he says that he suggests that he is a martyr. But he acknowledges what Bonhoeffer himself indicates. That the term takes on a different meaning in the modern context where the church and the world were at one time clear and opposed entities. All of the Nazis, including Adolf Hitler, would count themselves good Christians. In fact, they looked at Adolf Hitler as a kind of messianic figure. And of course, we, it's not just Nazi Germany, we have this problem all over the world of Christianity being fused with nationalism and with evil. And so Bonhoeffer had a premonition that the situation would call for the spilling of martyrs' blood, but he also understood that the church and Christians were complicit in the evil which they faced. In other words, why does Adolf Hitler rise to be fewer? Well, he would say because of the church, it failed. And he had come to feel that he must take extreme measures. But the question is, how far you know, was he willing to go? How far are we willing to go? And what might a modern martyr look like? And so first of all, we do not usually think of martyrs as among those who have taken up arms. Or do we? You know, with the Protestant Reformation, it is common to blur the lines between those who have died in war with martyrs. And so it was common in World War I to see written on the tombs of soldiers that he who would lay down his life for his friends, as if to die in war is to take up your cross and follow Jesus. 
But Bonhoeffer seems to have been a pacifist, which makes it even more complicated. His commitment to the ethic of peace was part of, he said, you know, he says that if you're going to follow Christ, you're going to do what Jesus did. And he describes this. He says, does Jesus refuse to face up to realities or shall we say to the sin of the world? Jesus tells us that it is because we live in the world and just because the world is evil that the precept of non-resistance must be put into practice. Surely we do not wish to accuse Jesus of ignoring the reality of the power of evil why the whole of his life was one long conflict with the devil. Quoting Bonhoeffer. He calls evil, evil, and that is the very reason why he speaks of his followers in that way. So he says both things. Jesus is nonviolent, and yet he resists the devil. In the same book, he says, that is why Christians cannot conform to the world, because their concern is extraordinary. What does this consist of? He says, it is the existence of those blessed in the Beatitudes, the life of the disciples. It is the shining light, the city on the hill. It is the way of self-denial, perfect love, perfect purity, perfect truthfulness, perfect non-violence. Here is undivided love, he says, for one's enemies, loving those who love no one and whom no one loves. It is the love of Jesus Christ himself who goes to the cross in suffering and obedience. He seems to be a pacifist, and yet some say, well, no, maybe not. The Bonhoeffer, you know, he writes the book Ethics, and he never publishes it in his life. And it's argued that he's changing his mind as he faces the hard difficulty of dealing with Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. And there is the idea in the Lutheran theology, well, there's two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of the world. And we act one way in the kingdom of the world and we act another way in the kingdom of God. The strategies are different. And so they would say, well, he acknowledged the reality of his time. He was never a pacifist, but maybe as a good Lutheran, that his participation, even in the plot to kill Hitler, was a part of his Christian understanding. I would say no. I would say, first of all, that's wrong about Bonhoeffer. I would say that's wrong about Lutheranism. And it's certainly wrong about New Testament Christianity. But first of all, Bonhoeffer clearly, in a friend's, a letter to a friend, this is uh, January of 1936, he says, Christian pacifism is self-evident. He understood the pacifism. He says it doesn't need theological justification. Just the opposite he was a pacifist because Jesus was a pacifist. Are you going to follow Jesus? Well, then you're going to do what Jesus did. His pacifism and his Christological convictions were inseparable. And so while some think of Lutheran, the notion of two kingdoms, that that in some way overrode his pacifism, 
It's actually precisely in that context that in a speech he's speaking at the World Youth Peace Conference. And it's in that context he says, because there is no way for us to understand war as God's order of preservation. Order of preservation is kind of a Lutheran idea of what God is doing with the one hand, you know, in the kingdom of the world. But there's no way to understand war as part of God's commandment. And because war needs to be idealized and idolatrized in order to live today's war, the next war, he's thinking of World War II, must be condemned by the church. We must face the next war with all the power of resistance, rejection, condemnation. We should not balk here at using the word pacifism. Just as certainly we submit the ultimate passim fasir to God, we too must passim fasir become pacifists to overcome war. In a sermon on 2 Corinthians, Bonhoeffer claims that Christianity stands or falls with its revolutionary protest against violence. Lawrence Whitburn, who was one of his congregants in the church he preached at in London, says that his pacifism was so marked and clear in his mind that we began to argue about it. We, began, we maintained our friendship, but clearly he was a strong pacifist. From his students, you know, he taught in a seminary. It was first a legal seminary, and then it was an illegal seminary. But one of the students from the seminary, Joachim Kennitz, comments, he says, it became clear to us on the basis of Bible study, the exegesis of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the book, The Cost of Discipleship, that it is not possible for Christians to justify killing or to justify war. Now, in a counter to this understanding, it's argued, well, you know, in the dire situation he faces in ethics at that late period in his life, that maybe he would consider employing violent means because the church had failed. But this is from ethics, this late writing. He says the Sermon on the Mount as the proclamation of the incarnate love of God calls people to love one another and thus to reject everything that hinders fulfilling this task. In short, it calls them to self-denial. In renouncing one's own happiness, one's own rights, one's own righteousness, one's own dignity, in renouncing violence and success, in renouncing one's own life, a person is prepared to love the neighbor. Of course, the big question here, okay, how does that fit with his plot <laughs> to kill Hitler? Because his brother-in-law is part of the counterintelligence and his family, they're kind of cultural elites. And his brother-in-law then brings him into the German counterintelligence and we know that Bonhoeffer, even during the period, you know, during the, the wartime period, he's traveling all over the world because of his work, 
whatever he's doing with counterintelligence. Some people argue that in fact he remained true to his pacifism and was never directly involved in violence or the enactment of violence. And the argument that he did not in fact ever abandon his pacifism and that he did not in fact take part in the plot to kill Hitler. Now this becomes highly controversial because his best friend Eberhard Bethke indicates that in conversation he told him I would kill Hitler given the opportunity. But then Bethke indicates but he was never involved in the plots on Hitler. And as late as 1942 he tells Bethke I stand behind what I wrote in Cost of Discipleship and that's where he espoused pacifism. Peter Hoffman, who is an expert on the various conspiracies, the plots against Hitler, he said Bonhoeffer urged his friends to use their influence to ensure that the Allies would call a halt to military operations during the anticipated coup in Germany. What he's saying is that Bonhoeffer's role was very limited. He's just asking the Allies to acknowledge another government should it arise. Karl Barth, who is the most famous of Bonhoeffer's friends, and who Bethke said Barth knew everything about Bonhoeffer, he gives us a kind of mixed testimony. He says he was really a pacifist on the basis of his understanding of the gospel and then he says, on the other hand, Bonhoeffer belonged to those circles of those willing to kill Hitler. And so there's a tension here. And from Bonhoeffer's own description, we understand this tension exists even in his own thought. The pure martyrs of the first century and beyond who gave up their lives in a clear witness to the gospel and against the state, you know, the emperor had claimed to be God, that's not the situation in Germany, in a German church, where Hitler had been embraced as God's man, God's messenger, on the order of Christ himself. And of course, Hitler's eager to make those comparisons. The distinction between church and world had come undone. Humanity itself is threatened. And the church, in Bonhoeffer's conception, the purpose of the church is for the salvation of the world. But now there is no true church in Germany. And so he indicates in an essay, the church and the Jewish question. You know, they'd come up with this Jewish paragraph in which Jews could no longer be ordained or no longer recognized as ministers in the German church. And there were a lot of Jewish Christian ministers. So he goes through, he says, first, we can question the state as to the legitimate character of its actions. That is, making the state responsible for what it does. Second, we can serve the victims of the state's actions. The church has an unconditional obligation toward the victims of any societal order, even if they do not belong to the Christian community. He says, let us work for the good of all. 
These are both ways in which the church in its freedom conducts itself in the interest of a free church. And then the third one. In times when the laws are changing, the church may under no circumstances neglect these. But the third possibility is not just to bind up the wounds of the victims beneath the wheel, but to seize the wheel itself. And in this third category, potentially, I don't know, he allows for the sort of action that he may have involved himself against Hitler. And he may have seen this as a legitimate Christian response to a government that has gone bad. And he expands upon this by indicating that the rise of the Fuhrer, it's not just a political problem, it's a religious problem. The Fuhrer arising from the collective power of the people now appears in the light as one awaited by the people, a Messiah. The longed-for fulfillment of the meaning and power of the Volk. Thus the originally prosaic idea of political authority is transformed into the political messianic idea of Fuhrer that we see today. All the religious thinking of its supporters flow into it as well. What's he saying? Christianity is involved in this problem of the identity of the Fuhrer. The Christian religious thought of the German people is so misdirected by the role of the Fuhrer that other modes, the other modes of resistance would no longer seem to be effective. He puts it in cost of discipleship this way. He said, it is not my task to look after the victims of madmen who drive a motor car. It's not only my task, but it's also my task to do all in my power to stop them from driving at all. And so maybe a key question, is Bonhoeffer consistent? Many who argue for and against his pacifism and his status as a martyr, they presume his consistency. If this is true, I think the stronger case was that he was consistent with his focus on the person of Christ in his ethics of nonviolence. But even here, there is a tension. As in Bonhoeffer's conception, he says, Jesus Christ came to initiate us not into a new religion, but into life and to be engaged in life. And as a result, he had this profound concern for the world, for the suffering Jews who he knew because of his work in counterintelligence about the death camps. And so he had great concern for politics. And it is not inconceivable that he went against his own conscience and beliefs. In one sermon even, very early on, he talks about, you know, Paul says this. Paul says, I would relinquish my own soul. I would become anathema in the sight of God if I thought it would save my people. And Bonhoeffer quotes that. And of course seems to be applying it to himself. He might take part then, maybe that's what he's talking about, in an active role to stop or kill the one that he 
called the Antichrist. On the other hand, you know, what is clear and irrefutable are the books that he's written, the word that he has left us. We can argue about his life, but we have his writings. We know what he writes. And it's pointing to the sole need for trust in the ethics of Christ. In recognizing Bonhoeffer as a martyr, I think we need to look at the world come of age, as he says it, and the possibility of a failed church. We're in a very parallel situation. In other words, Bonhoeffer is a lesson that we need to look at and learn because I think we're facing a similar time. A failed church, and there needs then in this time to be trust in the conquering power of the Lamb. And so each of us will have to act according to our own understanding of the gospel. But even in the life of Bonhoeffer, or maybe Martin Luther King, we now recognize that in a world that may identify itself in part with the teachings of Jesus, but like the Nazis, like the white races, they've co-opted Christ for evil purposes. That distinguishing church and world calls for great discernment. And this may mean that the lines are less clearly drawn as to what it might mean to suffer with Christ as we may be called to stand against those who officially embraced Christ for evil purposes. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.